Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're so glad that you've joined us in our series, Easter, The Jesus Way. Jesus is our ultimate example for how we should live our lives. In this series, we are looking at Jesus's ministry, from His calling to His victory over the grave. We are walking alongside His journey to the cross, to His death and burial, and then to His resurrection. Each week, we will be deep diving into chapters 15 through 21 of the Gospel of John, leading us all the way to celebrate Christ's victory over the grave on Easter Sunday. Now let's tune in. Good to see everybody. Everybody's back from break. If you've been anywhere, maybe you're back and maybe some of you are traveling back. So if you're watching online, we're grateful that you tuned in this morning. Um, Look, we are in a series called The Jesus Way. And as I'm thinking about this series, a story kind of came to mind. And not too long ago, we did a thing in my family. And this thing, apparently, a lot of people have already done. We got a Costco membership. Anybody got a Costco membership here? Um, I've never been to Costco before, except for this one time. And, and we got this Costco membership, and I was super excited um, about what, what is Costco about. And so my wife one day, she gave me a list of items to go to Costco to get and the two-year-old daughter that we have. And so uh, I took my two-year-old in my first trip to Costco and, uh, and this long list of things to purchase. And so we got into the Costco parking lot, and it took me 30 minutes to park. What's going on at Costco? Like, it's always this busy, apparently. And so people are getting gas, long, long lines. People are trying to find parking spots. And it's, it is quite the experience just to park at Costco. And so we finally got a parking spot. We made our way into Costco, and it is massive. You can buy things in bulk. It's really unbelievable. And, 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 and so we're, I'm looking around. I'm just in amazement by all that is around Costco. And I have my two-year-old, mind you. So I'm walking around, and I have this long list, 15 minutes into the trip, I've yet to get anything on my list. There's one thing about Costco that uh, maybe you're not aware of. They don't have any directional signs. Nowhere. Like, where's the bread? I don't know. Um, so I'm going Costco. I'm just, nothing's in my cart. I'm just walking around with my two-year-old. I'm looking at everything. First of all, your minds, your, your eyes start to wander at everything. You're like, maybe I need that. Maybe I need that. Maybe I need this. And so you're going around. I don't have 30 minutes into the journey. I have yet to get anything in my cart. And so I'm, I'm frustrated at this point. But there's something I learned about myself in these moments. That I'm the kind of person who, regardless if I'm lost or if I need any help, I have a hard time asking for help. Anybody, anybody with me? You have a hard time asking for help. Even if you're lost, you're like, I could figure it out eventually, right? But 30 minutes into the journey, I got so frustrated that... Um, that I decided, okay, I give up. I have three items in my cart, two of which are not on the list. (laughs) 
golf balls may have ended up in my cart, like 24. Like, I'm, this is in bulk. This is amazing. And so I wind up with three items. I get frustrated. I leave with a, a, a hot dog and a slice of pizza and haven't been back since. <laughs> so all that to say, I was frustrated. I didn't ask for help. I tried to do things in my own way. And how often in this life do we do that in our own life? We try to do things the, the our way. And we try to live life on our own and we end up being frustrated. We end up being burnt out. We end up being left out and all these things. We end up being lost, confused, or even tired because we try to do things our way. And what we're trying to do throughout this series is, hey, what would it look like to not do things our way? What would it look like to do things the Jesus way? How do we transition our our way of thinking? Because here's the reality. Even in our Christian culture, we can do things our way and make Christian about us instead of about Jesus. And so how do we do things the Jesus way? So now this morning, I want to talk to you about a component of our faith that has the ability to transform our faith. And this is very much represents the Jesus way, but I believe this component of our faith is the most underutilized day-to-day component of our faith that we use. You see, this component of our faith has the ability to change our perspective, okay? It has the ability to guide our thoughts. It has the ability to tap into the power of God. And it has the ability to impact those around us. Now, who would say I'm interested in that? I'm interested in, in that because I want to entertain this idea. I think this, this, I would love to know more about this. And let me just tell you, this one idea is this. It's prayer. It's prayer. Prayer has that thing, that ability to change everything about our lives, but yet we, it's so underutilized. You see, prayer is one of those things that can advance the kingdom of God. When Jesus walked into the temple one day, and there were, there were people, uh, there were people uh, selling goods inside the temple, and Jesus was frustrated. You're making my temple out to be something that it wasn't intended to be. And so he's frustrated. What does he begin to do? Flipping tables. Because he's frustrated, and he said, my house will be called the house of Not great teaching, not cool worship sets, not great coffee, not great kids program. We have all those things, by the way. But he said, my house would be called a house of prayer. So if he says that, and that's about the Jesus way, we would do good to pay attention. So if you have your copy of scriptures, turn to John chapter 17, John chapter 17, the night before Jesus went to the cross and, and Jesus prays his last prayer. So if you have your copy of scriptures, you can turn there or the, the verses are gonna be on the screens. But before we do it, we're not gonna talk about it. We're gonna be about it. So let's pray. Father, we love you. We're grateful for this opportunity to gather corporately as your church family, to worship you, to honor you. And now we open up your words. And what we pray more than anything, is that we will be changed by your words. Please, God, may we have attentive ears to hear what you're telling us so that our lives will be forever changed. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right. Are we ready? So John chapter 17 is the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus. And he prays this prayer the night before he was crucified. You think about that. So what kind of prayer does he pray knowing that he's going to be crucified, knowing that he's going to the cross? What kind of prayer does he pray? And I believe this not only gives us a perspective into the heart of Jesus, but it also paves the way for, for us to understand how we ought to pray and what are some of the elements in our prayer. Now, I do understand that there are some things that Jesus prayed that we simply cannot pray. He was the son of God. He was the second member of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are some things that we cannot pray, but there are three major components of his prayer that I think we would do well to add to our prayer, add to our prayers. And you should know this, that the elements in his prayer are similar to the elements where he taught his disciples how to pray. Remember, he approached, they approached Jesus and said, teach us how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He taught him that prayer. But there's one element that doesn't make it in his prayer. Do you know what that element is? Confession. Jesus didn't need to confess. He was perfect. He was sinless. So he, the confession you're not going to see in the Jesus prayer. But this is how he starts his prayer. John uh, 17, verse 1. You ready? 17, verse 1. He says, Father, let's stop there. Remember, he said, our father, he taught his disciples, he's his father. So here, he's establishing his position in this relationship. And I think whenever you establish that position first, it changes your perspective. Let's keep that in mind. Change your, establish your position, it changes your perspective when we pray like this. He says, Father, the hour has come. This is it. This is the final destination. I'm about to go to the cross. This is the end of my earthly ministry. And he prays this. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. Jesus prays for himself. We're thinking, well, this seems kind of strange uh, that he asked God to glorify him, that he may glorify, glorify me so that I can glorify you, all those things. But here's what I want to give to you today is that we often get this, get this wrong view of Christian humility, which we think Christian humility oftentimes is this, is not seeking prosperity. That's not it at all. Can you ask God to bless you? Can you ask God to honor you? Can you ask God to glorify you so that you would glorify your Father in heaven? It seems a little bit prideful, but let me say, Christian humility, Christian humility happens when it's less about you than the work that God is doing in you. That's when the gospel comes to life. And Jesus taught this in the person of Jesus, and even his earthly ministry. You remember the time where he sat down with his disciples and he got on his knees and he washed his disciples' feet. He's teaching them about true humility, about being a servant and, and, and leading as a servant and serving each other so well. Jesus understood more than anybody this concept of humility. Yeah, he said, glorify me so that I may glorify you. Uh, Matthew 5, 17 says, uh, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify who? Your father in heaven so that, people would, so that he would be glorified. You see, Jesus, oftentimes, I love this about Jesus. He used his position to not build himself up, but to build others up and to lift up his heavenly father. See, Christian humility is this. It's a decision to use whatever success God sends to you to direct people's attention towards God. I pray that God would raise up and glorify rolling hills. 
not for Rolling Hill's sake, but for the kingdom of God's sake. Can we, can we pray that with our own life? Yes, we can pray that for our own life. And yes, you ask, well, how do you know it's really not about you? Anybody ask, wonder that? How do you know that whenever you ask God to glorify, it's really not about your glory, but it's about God's glory? How do you know that you're genuine when you ask that? I think there's two ways you can really tell if it's about your glory, if it's not about your glory. The first way is this, by our response to others' success. This is a big one. Because when someone else gets exalted beside you, you can tell whether it's about your glory or God's glory. When God lifts up somebody else, what's your immediate first reaction? Right, it's easy to say, man, I'd rather God do that in me and use me in that way rather than that person. Man, has that ever crossed your mind before? I remember being a young pastor in, in ministry, and I would see others get success and others get the, 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 the job or the promotion or whatever it is. And man, I was like, ah, oh, God used me in that way instead of that person. That was the arrogance and pride in me. Instead of saying, God, praise you for what you're doing in their life. God, lift them up so that they may glorify you are we really good at celebrating other people and their success? That's a determining factor if you, if you think it's about your glory, if it's about your glory or God's glory. You know, I've been looking at what's going on all over the country. And you know, for churches, we pray for, we pray for a revival all the time. We God, do a revival, do a revival. And then we look at Asbury College and we see something happening there. And sometimes our response can be, yeah, but, but... Is it really? Instead of saying, God, praise you for what you're doing in the life of young people. Praise you for the revival that's breaking out all over the country in universities such as Asbury College. Praise you. Are we celebrating people really well? The second thing that, that we know that it's about God's glory, not our own, is our response to suffering. Another way you know it's about God's glory is when, you, when he sends suffering to you like he sent to Jesus. This is a tough one. Because often God brings glory to himself by how joyfully believers suffer. When we go through pain, what is our response? And here's a, here's, here's a statement I wanna to give to you. Is, is it true that God gets glory when Christians get well? Is it true? Yes. Is it true when God, that, that God gets glory when Christians don't get well? When we're able to say, even in the midst of the pain, our treasure in heaven is far greater than our treasure here on this earth. You know, the Apostle Paul went through some pain himself. In fact, he, went, he was going through some suffering and he said, God, will you take this thorn from my flesh because I don't think I can deal with it any longer. And what does the Lord say to him? My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's response, therefore, God, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. God, I boast in it. I'm grateful, even in pain. Get this, even in the midst of confusion and disappointment, that I trust God and his loving purposes for my life. Why? 
because God showed himself faithful and trustworthy on the cross. And because he showed himself faithful and trustworthy on the cross, I can trust him right now, right here. See, that's God's glory. That's, that's when you know it's about his glory. So our prayers for ourselves should be centered around God getting credit. So the first thing he prays for is for himself. Now that we see something, he shifts his prayer right here. And then he begins to pray for his disciples. Prays for his disciples. Verse six, I revealed you to those whom you gave me out of, uh, out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Then he goes on to say, they believe me, they accepted me, they trusted me, and all these things. Let me just pause here for a second because the bulk of his prayer here is about his 12 disciples, well, 11 disciples, because Judas would betray him, about those disciples. The best illustration is probably the four or five people in your life that you pray intimately for daily. This really prioritizes the importance of Christian friendships. So let me give you this. God gives us Christian friendships as one of the greatest earthly gifts. And let me just say, do you have those people in your circle, in your life that are actively praying for you daily, that love you, that challenge you, that it holds you accountable? Who are those people in your life? And let me just say this, behind every spiritually healthy person that I know, and probably you, this probably goes for you too, behind every one of those people, are a support system, are a small group of people that are there to support and holding accountable. You know, over the past few years, there's been a slate of high-profile pastors that have fallen from ministry. And there, there's one thing that they all have in common. You know what that one thing is? They isolated themselves from others. They isolated themselves from others. Proverbs 18.1 says this, "'Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desires.'" He breaks out against all sound judgment. When people are isolated, they become vulnerable. When they're vulnerable, they begin to make destructive decisions. So don't isolate yourself. Don't isolate yourself. That's why we call our men's ministry here verses. And we have a, we have a tagline that says, don't go alone. Don't go, there's a reason for that because we know that when you're vulnerable, you make destructive decisions. So don't isolate yourself. We have, we have gathering groups for women. We have community groups that we believe in because there's something that happens in circles that can't happen in rows. In your small group, there's something that happens there when people actively um, support you and love you and pray for you. Now, I love Rose. I love what we get to do in corporate worship. But let me tell you, there's something that just happens in circles that cannot happen in rows. So that's why we encourage everybody to get in a group. In fact, from the youngest to the oldest, we want to be in a group. That's why we have preschoolers in small group all the way to high school. We want all of our age level programming to be in groups because we know how important this sports system is. We know what happens when people get isolated. So you need close Christian friends. Now here's the thing, you may be in the room and say, well how do I do that? I'm new to church or, or maybe I've been here for a little bit, I just haven't gotten connected. Well I will tell you one thing, go to the next step booth and ask how to get in a group. Find a community group, find a women's group, find a men's group that you can jump in into. We have opportunities. The second way is this. Find a place to serve. Find a place to serve. Be on our core team so you can find connection to people on our core teams. All that to say, don't be isolated. Don't be isolated. That's where the enemy works the best. 
Now, what does he pray specifically for these guys? In verse 11, he, he starts praying for his disciples. He says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. He prays not that they would be taken out of the world, but they would be kept from the world by the power of his name. I would I point this out because of this, because I think there's a distorted, there's a distorted view of Christianity that seeks to remove itself from the world, that believes that isolation is the only way to avoid corruption. Isolation is the only way to avoid corruption. And I get the concept, and we get the concept of not being corrupted by the world. You don't wanna be corrupted by the world. I don't wanna be corrupted by the world. And I certainly don't want my kids to be corrupted by the world. And that's why we place our kids in programs and, and schools and various Christian activities. And those are all awesome. But I wanna tell you this, a part of true discipleship doesn't mean total isolation from the world. You say that again. It doesn't mean total isolation from the world, but rather living like Jesus in it. Living like Jesus in it. David Platt, pastor in DC, he said this, our mission is not to disinfect Christians and put them on a shelf. It's to disciple them and put them in the service. Activate their faith. Because what happens when you remove yourself from the world? You lose your evangelistic witness. The very reason why you are left in the world. So we can't be totally isolated from it. We did a series last year called, the five, or called Living Intentional Life, and it was about the five eyes of evangelism. evangelism. If you were here, it was a really incredible series. We talked about those five eyes. The first was identify. Identify people in our life who are outside of our faith. Who are those people? Do we have those people in our life? The second one is invest in those people. What would it look like to take a step into their lives and into their story, invest in them through empathy, through showing up in hard times, whatever it is, just investment. The third thing is intercede. Are we actively praying on their behalf? The fourth is, um, is inform, informing them of the gospel. What is the good news of Jesus and how he redeems people? Are we sharing? And the, the fifth thing is inviting them on the journey with you, inviting them to have a relationship with Jesus. So we had those things and all that to say, do you have people outside the church that you're actively engaged in? And then he says this in verse 17, get this. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So he said, be in the world, but not of the world. Then he said, sanctify them by what? By truth. Sanctify means to be set apart, to be made holy. So to be separate, that's the process of sanctification. That's the discipleship process. It's the process of being set apart, not by isolation, but by knowing the truth of God's word. Jesus wants you to be in the world, but not shaped by the world. So how do you do that? That's the question. That's what you're asking. How do you do that? How do you, you not let your heart be shaped by the world? How do you develop this holy heart and engage the world in, in a holy life within the world? And here it is, by knowing God's word. It may sound simple, right? But the best, best thing to do is knowing the truth is the best way to avoid a lie. 
Knowing the truth is the best way to avoid a lie. Um, your success in the world spiritually and your kids' success in the world, get this, will not be based on how well you isolate them from the lies. It'll be based on how well they know the truth. Right? So how well do they know the truth? And, and I, I, man, I, I just, I love our family ministry here. Um, obviously, I'm biased. But I love our family. I think we have such incredible kids and student ministry, and, and we take it very seriously. We take discipleship very seriously. And uh, one of the things we know is the parent is the primary spiritual leader of their home. It's just, it will always be that way. You have 3,000 hours with your kids. We have about 40 with your kids a year. So, so we just know that, that that's, that's part of the deal. And so let me speak to you for a second about, uh, at, from, from a dad's perspective. I have two little girls, and my little girls are not gonna go as far as I'm not willing to go. So they're gonna be, go as far as what I'm willing to go. Does that make sense? Like, if I'm willing to go the extra mile on my faith journey, that's only gonna see, speak volumes to them because we have to model a behavior that we want to see. And so the, the, the challenge here is for us, do we memorize scripture? Do we do a daily devotion? Do we pray over our kids and pray daily? Do we read books that are edifying? That's why I want my kids involved with our kids programming here. Yes, we have incredible kids programming. Did I say that already? We have, it's awesome. Um, but I want them to be involved in, in kids program because because I never wanna do anything that's gonna negatively have an impact on my uh, kids from having an opportunity to knowing about God's word. I want them to know about God's word because, because, because of this, it's unlikely they will ever play a professional sport. <laughs> it's unlikely, unlikely. It's unlikely that they'll ever be professional dancers. It's unlikely but it's 100% likely that they will face challenges in this life that has potential to keep them from experiencing the promises of God. That's 100% for, for, sure, for sure. So Jesus prayed for his disciples, but he also, he also prayed for all believers. He prayed for the church. And this is what he prayed. Verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Verse 21, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. First, I want you to notice something. Jesus doesn't pray for the world. He prays for the believers in the world. It's not because he doesn't love the world. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Why does he pray for just the believers in the world? Because hope for any community is, not, is, is found in believers in that community. Okay, hope for any community uh, is found in believers in that community. So collectively, that's why we need to be praying for Christ followers in our communities. That's why we need to be praying for the health of churches in our communities, not just rolling hills. We need healthy churches, amen? We need healthy churches. And I like to think about it this way. Whenever you're on a plane and the cabin loses pressure and, and they tell you to, those things that come down, those masks, they tell you to put it on yourself before you take care of your kids because they figured something out, is that we need parents to be alert in these times because the, the kid's best chance for survival is whenever the parents are alert. 
So put on your mask first. We need churches to be healthy. We need churches to put on our masks first. And then our communities will change. We need healthy churches. Yes, I realize that the church is not perfect. If you're looking for a perfect church, this one's not it. If you're visiting for the first time, I'm sorry. This is not it. You're not going to find a perfect pastor here. You're not going to find perfect people here. But Jesus knew more than anything how messed up the church would be. Look at who he chose. He chose Judas, who was a liar and a betrayer. He chose Peter, who ended up being a coward. He denied Jesus three times. And then whenever he went to the cross, Peter was nowhere to be found. Neither was any of the other disciples. And then, uh, get this, um, Jesus said, hey, Peter, you're going to be the rock in which I build my church. And then 10 years after the resurrection, Peter was still partially racist. Go check out Acts chapter 10. And then you got James and John who are constantly arguing of whether who's going to be the first in the kingdom of God, who's going to be number one apostle. And then you have Thomas who really wasn't sure if he believed. He, he, was, he was doubtful. So yes, he knew the church was messed up, yet he prayed that this church is the greatest and only hope for the world to know the truth. Praise God because there is room for me and you. Praise God. The doors were open for us. Church is a, a hospital for sinners. It's not a spa for the saved. This is not a country club. And Jeff will say it every time. This is not a country club. This is not a country club. That's why we call our, our people who join our church partners instead of members. Because you think membership, you think country club. We're partners. We're linking arms together on this mission that God has called us to. This great commission. So when we pray for our world, our main show, focus should be we pray for the spiritual health of believers in our world. Pray that the church will be healthy during this time. Focused on and clear about the gospel, right? The second thing he prays for, believer, for all believers is that they would, they would internalize God's love. Verse 26 says that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He's praying that we would love Jesus the way that God loves Jesus and we would love others the way that Jesus loves us because when we do that, people will know that he is real. People will know that. And so what does love look like practically for us? Let me give you two things in how we serve and love each other, how we treat each other within these walls, within the church is gonna be a testimony for those outside the church. When they look in, do we see a lot of division? Do we see a lot, of, a lot of people bickering back and forth about whatever? Or do we see people serving each other really well and loving each other really, really, really well? Jesus reminds us of this in John chapter 13, verse 35. He says, by this, um, all men will know that you are my disciples. By what? By your love. The second way is this, in how we serve and love our community, that Jesus is spilling out into the streets from here. One of the greatest testimonies of Rolling Hills is when people say, man, they love our community really well. They serve our community really well. They really are for our community. That our reputation is a service and love in our community because how does the world know that God's real? By how well we preach? By our worship set, by how well we articulate our prayers, 
by our love and how we display that love. Let me just tell you this. If we don't internalize God's love, this will never happen. So it has to start with us. And I, 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 Can we wake up every day and remind ourselves that we are in desperate need of the gospel and the God, and the God of this universe saved us through Jesus? We need to remind ourselves of that every day because when we do, it changes our perspective. It changes how we interact with other people when we're reminded of how broken we were and we were redeemed by the grace of God. It changes us. And lastly, Jesus prayed for unity within his church, which is tied to our understanding of love, by the way. In verse 23, he said this, I in them and you in me, that they may be brought to complete unity. And get this, then the world will know. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with those outside of the faith so that when they see the unity despite the diversity within the church, they may actually believe. They may actually be convinced that you have sent him, sent me, Jesus said. This is how the world's gonna stand up and take notice, he says. How incredible is it that that God would choose to use the church in so many different uh, personalities and perspectives and different places to advance the kingdom of God? Because Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that everything rides on their unity. It's not their culture, their politics, their language, how they do baptism, how they do communion, what time of the day they meet for service. It's not dependent on their worship style. What mattered was, are they unified in one purpose to make disciples of all nations under one message? And that message is this, that Jesus gave his life for the sins of the world so that people would have eternal life. Are we united under Jesus? See, that's, that's the thing that blows my mind. We come from different backgrounds. We come from different journeys and different cultures. And somehow, some way, God uses this, even with broken people from all different places to advance his kingdom. What in the world? Only one reason, Jesus. That's how it happens. Because we're all connected by something that's much greater because of this. We are stronger through Jesus than anything that could divide us. We are stronger through Jesus than anything that could divide us. And as we wrap this up, there, let me just give you a, a good example of this. Recently, there was a movie that, w- that came out that was first a book. It was written by Greg Laurie, and it was Jesus' Revolution. It was how God transformed an unlikely generation and how he can do it again today. I think I have a picture of this, by the way. You can just throw that up. So these are two wildly different guys they should not be together. It's Pastor Chuck Smith who was drawn to the acceptance, love, and charisma of a young street preacher and chooses to open the doors of his languishing church to free-spirited hippies who follow this guy named Lonnie Frisbee. These guys had flaws for sure, but somehow God brought them together. They couldn't be any more different from one another. And here's what happens. Here's what unfolds. Let me read this to you. In Southern California, what unfolds is the beginning of one of the greatest spiritual awakenings in American history. 
touching hundreds of thousands, if not millions of young people across the country in the late 60s and early 70s. The success of the church lies between its walls, this writer says. says, these guys frequently ministered to people along the beaches of Southern California, baptizing them in the ocean. Their draw to people to enter the church occurred concurrently with an intentionality to connect with others outside the church. This also accompanied a willingness to embrace, accept, and welcome people in their present reality rather than expecting them to change before they come to Christ. The change happens with ongoing intimacy with Jesus. The goal was Jesus. See, pointing people to him and learning, and, and learning helping people learn to live like him because, because of their unity, people were drawn to Christ. Jesus prays for that. He could have prayed for anything. He could have prayed for provision for them, but he's prayed for unity. So I'll wrap this up by saying this. If Jesus was praying these prayers the last night of his life, don't you think it's important for us to pray these prayers too? To, to use these prayers to model for our own prayers. Jesus didn't stop, by the way. John chapter 17 was the prayer before he journeyed to the cross. And then he went to the cross, but he hasn't stopped praying because in Hebrews, it tells us, it says whenever Jesus, after his resurrection, he went to be at the right hand of the Father and he never stopped praying for us. He still prays these prayers for us today. Now, here's the best part, is whenever we pray these prayers, we're not praying to him, we're praying with him. We have an opportunity because of what Jesus did through his work on the cross to have an intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we have the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, working in us. So we have a direct connection with God. We don't have to go to a place. We don't have to go to a person. We have a direct connection with God through Jesus and what, what he did on the cross. And we get to pray with him on this journey. So, so here's what I want to do as church. As response to, to Jesus' prayer, I think we should pray together. We don't, we don't want to, if Jesus were to walk through these doors in the back and he would look around, he's like, what, what is going on here? We don't want him to be confused about what's happening. We want him to walk in and say, man, this is a house of prayer. This is a house about the business of God and about loving people well and about making him known on the earth and about loving him well. So we want to pray. So over the next few moments, that's what we're going to do as a church family. Whether you're worshiping with us online right now or worshiping whatever campuses, the campus that you are attending right now, we're going to, we're going to pray together. We're going to be a praying church family. And, and we, what we do is we have, that's one of our core values. If you go to a partnership class, that's one of our core values is prayer because we believe prayer should undergird everything that we do. So we're going to pray in this moment. There's going to be four prayer prompts and we're going to take 30 seconds each so we're gonna get in this posture of praying. So the first one is this, are you ready? The first one, we're gonna pray for salvation. Salvation. So here's what I want you to do. Take like 30 seconds and collectively, everybody in our church family, we're gonna pray for the salvation of those who are far from the Lord, that they will be drawn to the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. You ready? Let's pray now.
Okay, now we're going to pray for this. We're going to pray for protection. Pray that you not take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. Let's pray for protection for our church family, for believers in our community. Pray for, for our churches and the health of the churches. Pray for our neighboring churches right now, all right? Let's just pray that right now. And now we're going to pray for unity. Pray for unity. I have given them the glory that you gave to me, that they may be one as we are one. Pray for unity, that all people will be drawn to Jesus because of how unified we are under one purpose and one mission and one message. Let's pray. Finally, we're going to pray for love. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as, I, as you have loved me. Let's pray for people to understand that this love is so tangible and so real that we are to display this love to the world around us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you um, in desperation. We desperately seek you. Um, God, we do pray for all these things. We pray for salvation to rise up. We pray for protection of, our, uh, of believers in the churches and how you have chosen us to be the hope of the world. And God, we want to be good stewards of the life that you called us to live. God, we pray for unity uh, among believers. We pray that we would be united under one purpose and one mission and one message in you, Jesus. And we pray for love that your love would be displayed in and through us, that we would be reminded daily that you saved us, that you are good. As God, I pray that your love will speak through our lives that would draw all men unto yourself. God, we're grateful for our church family. I pray for protection and provision over our church family so that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' most precious name we pray. Amen, amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with someone in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. 
The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.